Uh, if you're here with us now, Psalm 32, we're working through various psalms. So let's, um, if you would, please stand. The psalms, 99.9% of the psalms are designed to be read corporately and responsively. And so I've taken a stab at des- uh, looking at the psalm and trying to figure out where one voice is to read and where the other voice is to read. And so there's a bold portion. I'm going to hope that you'll read that out loud. I'll read the regular print. And I think as we read it, you'll see the design of this psalm as it's to be read corporately. So this is the word of God from Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the man. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Would you please be seated and would you join me once more in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've revealed yourself through your word and we we pray this morning, Lord God, that you would be at work here. As we look at this passage, we pray that you would sanctify us, make us more like your Son, Christ Jesus. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Make us to glorify and honor you in all that we say and do. Through the reading of your word, by the work of your Spirit in our hearts, that you might be glorified, that that we might know more of you, that we might be made more like your Son, and that you might be glorified. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, many uh, years ago, I worked for a construction company. And I I worked for this construction company for a few years, and the company had um, a lot of strengths and a lot of obvious weaknesses. And like I imagine, like any company does, their strengths were that they were this small, family-owned company they were well known in the community. The owners of the company kind of knew everybody and that you know, provided a lot of good connections. And by and large, they were good builders. They built good homes and remodeled very well. They did a good quality of work. But the weaknesses were, as I said, kind of obvious. Their, their greatest weakness was that the owners of the company were just not very good with details, okay? They're not very good with details. 
and it especially manifests itself in their ability or lack of ability to manage the finances of the company, okay? Ultimately, it resulted in the closing down of their construction company. But I remember one time, slightly or just before I left the company, I remember one time going into the office, the main office there where the, um, uh, the husband and wife who ran the company, they were there, and I remember going in the office, sitting down on the couch, and I lost something out of my pocket, and it fell behind the couch. And so I, I went to go get it to retrieve it. I pulled out the couch, and behind the couch, there was a whole pile of unopened mail. And I thought, well, this is strange. And so I began to examine the mail that was behind the couch, and it turned out just a bunch of bills, uh, utility bills and bills from subcontractors and materials that had been unpaid. And I thought, well, this is kind of strange. It looks like months' worth, worth of mail back here. And so I, I asked my boss who owned the company, I said, yeah, you know, I just can't deal with the feeling of owing somebody money. So I decided I could just uh, absolve myself of it by sticking the bills behind the couch, Okay. And I thought, wow, what a terrible idea. If you're running your own business, this is like a business 101. Just because you hide the, the, the bills behind the couch doesn't mean that the bills don't actually exist. They, they still exist. You still owe a debt, okay? And I, and I give you that example this morning because I think it helps to illustrate the thing that is being spoken about in Psalm 32 this morning. Psalm 32 is a psalm that, that deals with guilt, it deals with our iniquity. So if you're looking for a quick moniker to understand Psalm 32, it goes something like this. If I have guilt or if I feel guilty, Psalm 32 tells me that the Lord God can remove my guilt, can remove my iniquity. Now, I, I shared that illustration with you because here's kind of the, the, the rhythm. Here's the rhyme that I see happening, the, the map that helps guide us through Psalm 32. That conversation kind of ended with a feeling, and so I'm going to put the feeling at the bottom here. The feeling that was being expressed was, listen, I kind of feel like I'm absolved from this. I feel like the weight is removed if I just hide the bills, okay? So it was a feeling that was predicated upon a debt that was built upon an action, and I'll talk about the action in a second, that is ultimately based upon a relationship, okay? So... You have four words here. They're all intimately connected. A relationship that leads to an action, that leads to a debt, that leads to a feeling, or vice versa. You can trace it either way you want to trace it. That is, the action that was involved in this conversation was that uh, there was uh, resources that were being borrowed, or there was electricity that was being used, or there was a subcontractor who was being contracted. And the relationship simply then was the relationship that was entered into with each of these entities. So because there was a relationship, and because there was an exchange of goods, the debt was incurred, and because of the debt, there was this feeling that, you know what, he just was uncomfortable with. Couldn't pay the debt, let me act as if it doesn't exist, and, and therefore we have this, this process, okay? Now, as we look at Psalm 32 this morning, Psalm 32 is going to walk us through the same process where we, we're going to get all these elements in the psalm. It's going to eventually lead us to the feeling of guilt, and we're going to ask a question as we look at Psalm 32 this morning. What function then is the feeling of guilt? Okay, How has God designed guilt and the feeling that accompanies it, how has he designed that to be used in the kingdom for our good? We're going to see all of that as we look at the psalm this morning. So I, I've given you three questions on the insert in your bulletin. There are three simple questions. The first one goes like this. 
What is guilt? What is guilt? The psalm this morning is very helpful for walking us through this. If you, if you noticed it, there's a number of particular words that David uses uh, that, are, that are words that have a unique meaning. They're not throwaway words. They're not just generalizations. They're, they're actually very important words that he's using to describe enmity with God. Okay, so look beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Two words that David uses, I think, are the action that are involved in this relationship. They are the transgression and the sin. Okay, so you can write those down. Transgression and sin. Two different words. They don't mean the same thing. The word transgression is uh, the Hebrew word pesha. It means rebellion. It's not unique to religious language, it simply means to rebel or to usurp an authority that's above you, okay? So anybody who has authority, who rebels against that authority, it's the word that's used there, it's translated as transgression. The second word that David uses is more of a religious word. The word that's translated as sin is a definitive word that means to violate or to break the law of God. It's the, the Hebrew word chata. Has a good sound, doesn't it? Chata, Okay? It occurs often in Scripture. The first time we see it, Genesis chapter 4. God's speaking to Cain, and he says, listen, if you're not careful, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, okay? It's the, it's the word that means to, to violate, to offend the law of God, to transgress it, okay? Two different words, rebellion and, and sinful transgression. Both are used by David to describe the action that is taken in, relationship, in the relationship that we have with God, okay? So the relationship we have is with God. The actions that are being taken are transgression and sin. And David speaks about them this morning in verse 1. But then he transitions in verse 2, and he uses this word. He says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Iniquity is the biblical word that is used to describe the debt that is caused because of our transgressions and sins. We can call it uh, iniquity. Sometimes it's translated as guilt. All right? It's the actual debt that is incurred, that is added to us, that becomes part of our existential reality because of the action, the transgressions and sins that we have in relationship to God. Okay? So is this all making sense? Iniquity and guilt is the, the thing that is incurred because of our transgression and sin. Now listen, if you, if you go ahead and search for the word in the Bible, you'll find that there's, there's a plethora of, there's hundreds and hundreds of times that the Bible uses the word iniquity, right? It's all over the pages of Scripture. And, and guilt is close behind. Guilt and iniquity, they're, they're all there. And what we could do if we had the time, we could take and go through the Bible and we could look at every occurrence of iniquity and guilt and we could begin to formulate a theology of iniquity and guilt, of the debt that is incurred because of our transgression and sin. But let me tell you just a few things that we notice as we read through the Scripture. First of all, the iniquity and guilt that we have is in relationship to God, okay? So that will shape or form the cost of our iniquity, Okay? Whereas the cost that's incurred when we have a debt to AEP or Home Depot or Lowe's, whereas that cost for the iniquity is a relatively low cost, you have to imagine that because now the relationship is with the living God, that the iniquity or the debt because of transgression and sin is going to be a great iniquity or debt. 
a, a guilt, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. Second of all, the iniquity that we have is directly related to the transgression and sin that we have, okay? So that is to say the debt that is created on our account to the living God is not for no reason. It's not sort of an a, a ambiguous idea. It is because we have transgression and sin against the law of God that this debt is now created and we carry this debt with us. Third thing I think to observe is the Bible often speaks about what we might reference as what it means to feel guilty, okay? So there's a difference between guilt and feeling guilty. You recognize it, right? So guilt is the debt that we incur. The, the feeling of feeling guilty is different. And the, and the Bible is going to tell us where the feeling of guilt comes from and then how God designs to use it. But if you look and you look for the words iniquity and guilt in Scripture, you'll find about 75% of the time they are accompanied with, they're partnered with two other words, okay, uh, to bear iniquity or to carry it. So as I'm saying, you, you, you do a word search and you're going to find iniquity. They're going to carry their iniquity. They're going to bear their iniquity. They're going to carry their guilt. They're going to bear their guilt. Over and over again, those are the two words that are used to describe it. And you know why those two words are used? I'm realizing right now, I don't know which bear I was supposed to write. Is it B-A-R-E or B-E-A-R? I don't know. Did I get it right? I got it, I got it wrong. Okay. So it's bear like the grizzly bear. Is that right? Okay. All right. So just forgive me. Write the right bear. It's okay. Um, the Bible describes guilt as a weight or a burden or, or, or it describes it as being crushing something that we carry as if it's on our shoulders, okay, that is weighing us down. And so the Bible often talks about bearing or carrying that guilt or that weight. That's the way that this guilt feels. That's the feeling of guiltiness, okay? And so, again, in the in the example I gave you earlier, my boss would have said that he's feeling the weight of the debt that he incurred because of the actions that he had taken in the relationships that existed, okay? So he was feeling that and he wanted to absolve himself from that. These are the elements that are going on in Psalm 32. Now listen, as we talk about the guilt that we incur, one of the things that the, the Bible reveals is that the, the nature of transgression and sin is greater and deeper and broader, and it begins earlier, and it extends later, and it causes more damage than we ever imagined, okay? So that the, the, the iniquity and the guilt that comes from our transgressions and sins is greater than even our minds can fathom. And oh, by the way, do you remember what the, the cost of our debt to God is, right? Well, the wage to AEP might be 100 bucks, or the wage to a subcontractor might be like $5,000, but what is the wage of sin against the living God? Yeah, your, your ears, you should say, oh, that sounds like a Bible verse. It is, right? The wages of sin is death, okay? So the, the, the relational debt that is incurred because of sins and transgressions, the living God, is payable with a life, right? That's, a life is owed, and here's what happens. Okay, from the beginning in the garden when Adam and Eve sin. Every sin then is payable upon death with one life, okay? So in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. God promises them. Upon sinning against the living God, they incur the debt of iniquity and that is credited to their account. One life, you now owe God, all right? That's why when they are in the garden and they are hiding from God and they leave, 
You read the description, you're like, oh, they, they look like guilty people. Yeah, they do. They feel the weight of the debt that they've just incurred. Okay? They, they, they feel the burden. They begin to bear and carry it. Now, because of the nature of sin, again, this is more extensive than we ever realized. Think about this. We all know that when we, if we steal, that that is a violation of the law of God. And we know that if we steal, we transgress or sin against His law, and a debt, I, I'm thinking of like an actual debt, is incurred and we owe God. Okay? And that's obvious to us. That's easy. What the Bible says is not just the things we do, it's the things that we also don't do or we fail to do. We talk about them as sins of omission and commission, right? So not only is stealing going to incur a debt to God, right? not also glorifying and honoring God in all good things, not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, not loving your neighbors yourself. Every time you fail to do that, you incur a debt to God that is your life. Right? You, you owe him. You have iniquity and guilt building up in your account against God. And the Bible also says it's even more than what you do and don't do. The Bible describes sin as being also part, not only our actions, but our thoughts and our dreams and our inclinations, okay? If, if you begin to think about each one of these debts as being credited to our account, like a, a piece of paper, like a bill that comes in the mail, and you, you begin to stack them up one on the other, you, you find very quickly that sin and transgression are so extensive in our lives that the iniquity and the guilt that is being credited to our accounts that we owe to the living God is greater and deeper and broader and bigger than we ever imagined, right? This is why when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and the scribes, this is why you say, how silly how silly is the mindset that we can, by our own righteousness, forgive the debt of iniquity? Do you realize the debt that you've incurred? Do you realize how much you actually owe the living God? Okay, so this is what, what David is dealing with as he speaks about iniquity in this passage. Now listen, this is also the value of this psalm. This psalm exposes the heart. And if we read through the psalm, we, we find that we, we are going to have to deal with the iniquity and the guilt that is incurred because of sin, and, and this psalm is going to help us to do it. Okay, the, the thing that we see in the psalm, the first thing we just talked about, what is guilt? Secondly, the psalm is going to tell us what is the natural response to guilt. What is the natural response to guilt? And uh, it's very obvious here. You can probably assume, think about this. If God creates us to be in relationship with him, and if by our sin and transgression we incur a great debt, a, an iniquity, a, a guilt that is so heavy upon us and it, and it weighs on us and it's kind of like a, a crushing guilt, then you can imagine what our natural response is. Our natural response is kind of to run from that. Right? Like, I don't want to feel like that. Who wants to feel like that? Who wants to feel the weight of guilt? Who wants iniquity to be upon their shoulders? So the natural response is to avoid that. Look at what David says in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Verses 3 and 4 are David's articulation of his first immediate response to his sin. Or some people say as you read through David's life uh, in some of these books, like in Kings and Samuel, 
when you read through David's life, you get the impression that when he sinned, for instance, uh, by having Uriah murdered and with Bathsheba, that it's like a year until David is actually turned and repents of his sin, okay? So there's a time period, however long it was in David's life, where he was doing this very thing, like, I don't want to feel that weight. I'm just going to run from it. I'm going to act as if it doesn't exist. I'm going to take the bill, and I'm going to drop it behind the couch, and I'm going to just act as if this debt is, is non-existent. And that's what he's describing in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I remain silent. I like that word silent. It's not actually the, the Hebrew word for being quiet, um, which would have been nice, but it's a different word. It's a, an agricultural word that literally means to plow the field, okay? So it would be the word to be used if you're plowing a field. And as you read about it, it's, it's suspected that this was a colloquial phrase much like the phrase we use today, burying your head in the sand. Okay, you, you know that phrase. Do you know that phrase? Yeah? Okay, good. Like burying your head in the sand. And somebody a thousand years from now is going to look at that and say, what does it mean to bury your head in the sand? They, they actually put their heads. No, but it means to ignore, right? To act ignorant, to, to, to be naive, to act as if nothing is happening. And this is how the phrase would have been used in David's day, right? So he's saying here, when I ignored it, when I acted as if it didn't exist when I just kind of uh, twiddled my thumbs and went about my life as if the debt, the iniquity, the guilt that I had incurred because of my sin didn't exist. Didn't exist. And then what does he say? Because I buried my hand, my head in the sand, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all the day long, my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. You see what he's describing? When I acted as if it didn't exist, I began to feel the weight of my iniquity and guilt. I began to feel the weight of my iniquity and guilt. Let me tell you something. It's very popular, not only in the world today, but it's very popular within the Christian church. It's very popular to try and reconcile the righteousness of God and the sin of man. Okay? And one of the very um, well-known ways that this is happening in the church is by absolving people of their sin by saying, essentially, listen, don't feel guilt for your sin. The feeling you feel right now over your sin is just a, it's just a cultural thing. It's just something that's been created because there's a, a, an expectation from the people around you, but God wants you to be happy. Just live the way you want to live, right? There is no guilt. There is no iniquity. Those things don't actually exist. You, we see it Right, all over society, we see it in many churches today. This is how, this is how the church has made peace right, with the this, this sexual revolution and the sexual deviation of our day. Right? With all the different uh, isms in sexuality, they've made peace with it by saying, listen, don't feel guilt for that. That's not actually wrong. Let me absolve you of your guilt. Okay? And and, and that leads to a place where the sinner says, oh, I can have God and I can have my sin too. I can have them both. I feel no weight of my sin. I feel no guilt. I feel no iniquity. But let me tell you something. It would be a colossal mistake. It would be a great travesty for us to assume that guilt is not designed by God for our good. It's, it's part of the very plan of God to bring sinners unto repentance. As a matter of fact, did you see what David said in verse 4? He describes 
his guilt in verse 3, and then he changes a little bit, and he says, not only is my guilt bring a, a weight, and, a, and it's a weight that I have to bury, and it, and it crushes my bones, but then he says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Do you see what he did? The weight of guilt is also described as the hand of God. The hand of God was upon me. And I felt as if my bones would crush. I felt as if I would waste away and be dried up by the summer heat. It was the hand of God that was upon me. And thereby, by feeling my guilt, I couldn't run from it. I was moved to confess it, to bring it to the foot of the cross. That's the design of God for our iniquity and guilt, that we would feel it, that we would bear it, we would bear it and carry it. Now listen, because of the fall and because of the corruption of everything that we know in this world, sometimes these things don't work perfectly together. So sometimes we incur a guilt to God, but we don't feel guilty, and that's a problem. Sometimes we don't actually incur a guilt to God, but we feel guilty, and that's a problem too. Sometimes, though we've been forgiven, we still carry guilt with us. And that's a problem. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the Bible's clear about that. But the design of God for guilt would be that it would move us to Him and that we would trust in Him. Now listen, this is the very thing that David does in verse 5, okay? This is the, this is the, the right response this is the right response to sin, transgression, and the debt that has created the iniquity and the guilt. You read it in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I don't know if you realize that the, the three words we've been talking about, transgression, sin, and iniquity, they're, they're all there. David brings them into the conversation again. He said, I acknowledged my sin. That's a violation of the law of God. Okay? I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's rebellion, willful rebellion against the living God. And what? I love it because he doesn't just say, well, you forgave my sin, which is good because he does that. Or uh, you acted as if these things were not there. Not how God does it, actually. Okay, he covers over our sin. But what does he say? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the, that's the debt that had been incurred, right? That's the, that's the adding up of all the, because of the action of transgression and sin, a debt that's incurred to God where we, we owe him our life. And these things are adding up over the course of our lives. And as David acknowledged his sin to him and he trusted in his forgiveness, he says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That the debt that I owed to you was now wiped away. You see what it's like? It's like David, essentially he's saying, you know, I, I denied these things. I denied these things. And, and the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me. And I, and I felt the guilt of my iniquity. And then one day David said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go behind that couch. I'm going to take out all the, the unopened bills that I haven't paid. I'm going to open each one. And I'm going to say, look, God, this is what I owe. Here's my debt. And here's my late fees. And, and here's the, the, the things that I've done, and, and here it is, and I give it to you, all of them. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. David comes to
to God in confession and repentance, acknowledging the weight of guilt and then trusting the Lord to deal with the weight and the burden that he carries. Listen, as, as we look at the psalm, here's one of the things we realize, okay? As we confess our sin to God and he forgives us, what he does is he removes the feeling of guilt by paying the debt that was owed as he forgives the transgression and sin, making us right with God, okay? I know you can't read any of my handwriting. That's okay. He removes the feeling of guilt by paying the price of my iniquity and forgiving my transgressions and sins, thereby making me right with him in my relationship with him. This is what's being described in Psalm 32. Rosary Butterfield, in, in describing this, she said, repentance is our daily fruit. It's our hourly washing, our, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, of Jesus' blood and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to renewed Christian conscience because it proves the obvious that God was right all along. That's, that's what's happening in Psalm 32. David, after a period of saying, I- I'm going to remain silent, I'm going to bury my head in the sand, I'm going to act as if the iniquity and guilt that I've incurred doesn't exist. After a period of doing that, David comes to God and he says, you know what, you were right, I was wrong. I've incurred a great debt and you know what, I can't deal with it on my own. I am not my own savior I have no ability to deal with a debt that's been incurred and building up forever and ever and ever. And so I come to you and I say, God, you're right. I was wrong. And I need you. And I need your grace. And I need your mercy. Listen, for anyone who ever has said that there's no grace and there's no mercy in the Old Testament, right? You've you've heard that. The New Testament, where you find mercy and grace. The Old Testament, all about the law. And all about people living for the law and, and a judgmental God, right? For anyone who says that Psalm 32 makes them to be a fool. Psalm 32 is a psalm all about the mercy and grace of God. As a matter of fact, this psalm began, it says, a, a masculine of David. A masculine of David. And if you go through the psalms and you were to categorize all of them, you would find that masculines have a few things in common. And one of the most prominent things that defines a masculine is, is a psalm of joyous celebration. It's a psalm of joyous celebration. And this psalm is not a celebration because David has victory or because the temple's been built or because the priests have done something really cool or because Israel has been successful. This And those things are all worth celebrating. But this psalm is a psalm of celebration because sin has been forgiven. And debt has been washed away. And iniquity is no more. And the feeling of guilt is absolved for the one who follows the Lord and confesses their sin to him and trusts in his forgiveness. That's why this is a psalm of celebration. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity, the debt of my sin. The rest of the psalm, we only read five verses, right? The rest of the psalm is like the after party for the confession of sin, okay? 
That's great. It is like the assurance of pardon, but it is like an after party. It's just a whole celebration from verse 6 onwards, okay? So we read about David's confession. He says, then you, God, you forgave me. And after that, there's really nothing but celebration. What else is there to do? David sees his iniquity. He confesses to the Lord God. The Lord God forgives him. And then he just says things like this. In verse 7, you're, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In verse 10, the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The rest of the psalm is a psalm of celebration. This is what it looks like, the, the ongoing work of God in the life of a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by trusting in him through faith, moved in faith and repentance, confessing their sin, may know that their sin has been forgiven and their iniquity has been washed away, been made white as snow. And so all that's left is celebration then. It's the, the, the beauty of understanding the iniquity of our sin. And listen, here, here's why I think this is most beautiful as we read Psalm 32. You, you see, as we talked about the nature of sin, how, how great it is and how wide it is and how deep it is, this is all in the providence of God, okay? According to God's plans, sin enters the world, and, and Adam and Eve, they fall into sin, and by falling into sin, they create an iniquity for themselves, a debt that they cannot pay. They carry the burden and the weight of that iniquity with them out of the garden, and then from that point forward, we all, like them, sin and transgress the law of God. We do it every day in ways that we know and ways that we don't know, racking up for ourselves a great weight and burden of iniquity that is too great for us to ima imagine, too great for us to manage beyond our wildest imagination, and this by the plans of God. Why? So he could send his son, Jesus Christ. Right? This is part of God's plan. You look at the word in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You know what? If you have a more wooden translation of verse 2, a lot of translators translate the word counts as impute. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. You know what that means? It is. It means to count, but it, it's, it's like it's a deeper counting, like a, a crediting. Okay? And it's, it's a word that we often use to describe our guilt and the righteousness of Christ. Our guilt has been imputed to him. And his righteousness has been imputed to us. You know that's the only way it's possible for any man to not have his iniquity counted by the Lord God? It has to go somewhere. Somebody's got to pay the debt. They've got to reconcile it, don't they? Okay. This according to the plan of God, that his son Jesus Christ would come into the world, that our guilt, our iniquity would be imputed to him, that the great debt that you've been incurring from before you knew it, from, from the time you were conceived in your mother's womb to the day that you die, in things said and unsaid, in the thoughts of your mind, in your dreams, in your inclinations, the debt that you've incurred because of all of that, if by faith you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, that debt is imputed to him on the cross, the penalty is paid, he suffers the wrath of God for it, and then his righteousness is imputed to us. And you might be wondering, why would God ever do that? Why would God plan for sin to enter the world and then plan to send his son and then plan for his son to suffer for our sin, pay the penalty for us, and us to be made righteous? You know why he did that? Well, the Bible's very clear about it. 
It's, it's the rest of this psalm. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Jesus said that. He who has been forgiven much loves much. God plans the fall. He plans to send his son to satisfy the demands of the law, to impute his righteousness to us, to take the debt on the cross so that he might make worshipers who love him and glorify his name and have thanksgiving pouring out of their hearts and can't think of any better way to express their gratitude but to cry out, thank you, God, for you have forgiven my sin. That's what the rest of the psalm is all about. And that's why God has planned to save us and to wash away our iniquity so that we might glorify his name as those who have been brought out of darkness and out of sin into marvelous light, forgiven forever and reconciled with him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ and we thank you that by his blood we have been redeemed. And we thank you, Lord God, for the weight of iniquity and the weight of guilt. Otherwise, how would we ever come to you? How would we ever know our need? And how would we ever know the, the cost of our iniquity and the great debt that we've incurred how would we ever know about grace and mercy? How would we ever know about the cross? But by the weight of iniquity and the weight of guilt that weighed upon us, crushing our bones, drying us out like a desert heat, a weight that we could not bear or carry, that moved us in desperate confession to repent of our sin and to trust in you. And so we thank you, Lord God. We thank you that you have forgiven us through your Son, Christ Jesus, and we pray for us who have confessed our sin. Would you remove the feeling of guilt that we know that we are not condemned. And may you make us, Lord God, to confess our sin, but to do so out of the gratitude of our hearts. That we will love you and worship you and honor you, our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. In your name we ask all of this. Amen.